0: Hello everybody, I'm Israel Ortiz, Program Manager at Health Teamworks. Welcome back to Health Teamworks Chat, Conversations on How to Make Healthcare Work podcast. We are fortunate to have our very own practice facilitators for this episode. Listen to Diane Carwell, Angie Schindlerberg, and Katie Ebinger discuss their thoughts about the importance of addressing mental health conditions to impact patients' overall health. During this episode, The team touches on how mental health conditions can impact the emergency department and hospital utilization. Also, how important it is to have the tools and skills to promptly intervene when mental health conditions are detected. You will hear about how understanding the patient's stories can promote psychological safety. Subsequently, this sense of safety or belonging can create a sense of dignity that leads to more engaged and empowered patients. Now get your coffee and tea and enjoy the conversation. Diane, please take it from here.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, Um, and thanks, Israel. I am Diane Cardwell. I am a senior practice facilitator with Health Teamworks. My background is nurse practitioner and PA and have spent 20 years in primary care and in the past 10 doing practice support work helping practices to be successful in alternative payment models. And I'm here today with two of my team members and I'll let them introduce themselves in just a minute, but we're gonna have a conversation about how to understand and influence um, the impact of mental health conditions and inequity on ED and, and avoidable hospital utilization. Okay, and with me today is An- Angie schindler Angie, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure, thanks Diane. Uh, yes, my name is Angie Schindler-Berg. I'm a licensed mental health um, practitioner. Um, spent a majority of my professional um, career in a community-based um, mental health um, services and for the past four years, um, uh, a larger focus on integrating um, behavioral health into primary care. Um, I'm a practice facilitator with Health Teamworks. Great, thanks
1: Angie. And my other team member, Katie Ebinger. Katie, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, Um, so I'm uh, Katie Ebinger. I'm also a practice facilitator at Health Teamworks. Um, My background's in social work and public health. Um, So I've worked with patients and as well as providers Um, and went on to focus more on health systems management and policy after that uh, sort of clinical work. But at Health Teamworks, I do a lot of work around implementing behavioral health interventions, as well as looking at and implementing culture and equity work. So excited to chat with you both today. Great. Thanks, Katie. So
1: everybody can see we really have a powerhouse of perspectives here as we talk about this very important topic. And I think the work that I do with care management, the work that Health Teamworks does with implicit bias training, um, brings so many great perspectives as we address this topic. Um, And again, the key topic we chose for today is to really have a conversation about how mental health um, and implicit bias in equity issues impact ED utilization and ultimately impact cost as the initiatives across the nation are pushing towards more and more healthcare payment to happen through alternative payment models versus the traditional fee for service. More and more practices, healthcare systems are wanting to focus on, gee, how do we impact this cost, especially around avoidable use. In addition, and, and I know on the news this morning, they were talking about a individual who had significant unexpected healthcare costs with a the procedure they were having done. And so I think we're seeing a an alarming rise in people who struggle with medical debt, um, people who struggle with out-of-pocket costs. So it makes, awareness of cost and what we can do to impact that, even more critical. So when we talk about understanding mental health, so I kind of think when I talk about mental health impact, I'm like, well, if you're not stressed and anxious when you go to the ED or the hospital, you will be when you receive the bills for it. But that's a whole side (laughs) note. Um, But when we talk about the impact of mental health and I'm frequently reminded, yes, we know if a patient comes in for a mental health episode, um, but I think there's a lot of underlying and I know when I've done ED review with care managers beginning to understand and to capture the impact of things like anxiety on your choice to go to the ED. Um, Patients who are poorly prepared to handle changes in their chronic condition It triggers anxiety. And when is anxiety worse? It's worse in the evenings. Um, And so when they act on that and and understanding the impact of that, in addition to understanding as we've seen such a rise in depression and anxiety, mental health conditions through the survival of the pandemic, um, there's just so many factors related to that. Angie, do you want to speak from your experience in mental health and behavioral health, Um, your thoughts on how we understand that portion of the population and then make sure they have the resources they need?
2: Sure. You know, I I think uh, a major piece of um, behavioral and mental health needs and what kind of factors into not seeking um, treatment or support is the stigma that comes with it. And we know that a large majority um, of um, patients that are, you know, in the midst of anxiety and, and depression, you know, often seek uh, medical care instead of behavioral health care. And again, I think it's the stigma, um, the not knowing um, how to deal with it in the moment. And I, and again, I think that's where it's so important to do consistent screenings in the primary care setting to, you know, be aware of, um, you know, what's happening um, with the patient regarding depression and anxiety. And we know when it's treated early, um, and um, patients can have a better understanding of, you know how this affects them, what some of their triggers are. Um you know, that there are always there are options but I think so often, and especially with the pandemic and and how that has affected so many people, it's that feeling of,, uh, this is how I feel. I'm the only one that feels this way. You know, where do I go? What do I do? so i I, I really think, um you know, in my past work in the community based setting, it was really, taking the time to educate and and help patients understand um, a diagnosis and that, um, you know, things can get better. But I I can, oftentimes I I think patients are reluctant to share and be honest with truly where they are at um, because of the stigma. And, um, and then, you know, that kind of snowballs into, you know, the point where, you know, EDs become that safety net, the lights are always on, there's always somebody there. And, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, because again, of the stigma and not, not mentioning it um, in primary care appointments or or sharing it with others, it, it just gets to the point where it exacerbates to the point where, you know, ED feels like the only option. So I think Catching it early, um, providing the support, you know, breaking the stigma that that comes with that, um, really, you know, puts patients in the in in a in a seat where they feel more in control. Um, but it is a scary place to be, and um, I, I don't know. I I speak a lot of the stigma, but I I really think that's what um, kind of you know, increases ED visits, um, not seeking um, mental health care, you know, uh, seeking it in a, a, pri- a medical care uh, environment versus a behavioral um, health environment. And- well, I,
1: I think you bring up so many good points there, as far as especially that stigma, because it is much easier for individuals to seek care for physical conditions yeah. versus mental health conditions. Any thoughts on how we kind of change the priorities for our workforce and for providers to provide that non-judgmental care?
2: Well, again, I think that just comes to understanding and educating and providing those, um, uh, you know, providers that are typically the first, you know, in the field, the medical or behavioral health field to identify, um, diagnose, and and um, that there is an issue, so you know we need to ensure that the resources, support, staff training, um, you know, having the sensitivity to better understand, um, you know, patients, you know, through the eyes of, 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 of dealing with depression and anxiety, and you know, providing the the staff the confidence and um, the resources to talk openly um, with um, patients you know, that are, you know, experiencing depression or anxiety. I think it's, if if folks aren't really comfortable with talking about it, it's, it's hard to talk about it. And so I think training workforce, um, you know, understanding um, mental health and uh, best practices to approach and to even apply um, screenings. I think that's another thing that, you know, we do and and we apply screenings, but we don't, there's not a lot of discussion. So just helping patients understand, you know, the purpose of this screening and, you know, you know, why, why we do it and, you know, what it can provide to us to better ensure that, you know, their needs are met and help them understand that there are options that you don't have to feel like this forever. And um, I think, again, the pandemic has pushed that.
1: And giving them some objective, I think sometimes sharing with patients their specific PHQ-9 score or GAD-7 score, because I think we all think in objective terms as much as possible. And I reflect back on a conversation I overheard among a group of providers, where um, one of the providers was talking about a patient with depression and the need to just pull themselves up from the bootstraps. And it was actually an endocrinologist talking and the psychiatrist at the table mentioned, gee, is that what you tell your diabetics? Just pull yourself up from the bootstraps and fix your diabetes. And so I think when we think about it in objective clinical terms, we realize how much bias sometimes we put into it. I think the other, you know, that issue of stigma is so important to address. and, And just by observing, I know there are times I've sat in waiting rooms when I'm visiting practices and heard some of the conversations. And literally I wanna video it to allow them to observe how they interact with patients and the things we do because while working, especially in primary care is not an easy job. People do not choose that from provider down for the money. You choose it because of the passion to care for patients. And so the ability sometimes to reflect on how we approach things, how we say things, that creates a safe environment for them and an inclusive environment, whether it's mental health, whether it's areas of inequity, um, gender identity, um, history of trauma, whatever it may be, understanding the impact of that on patients choosing to go to the ED and not waiting. And you brought up a couple of really good points as well, that with mental health, it's as important to have early interventions, to not wait till they're in crisis, to not assume they're gonna go to crisis. But also you brought up the need for their ability to develop skills to intervene, whether it's identifying a support system. And I think this is a true across all populations, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health, whether it's the social needs or psychosocial needs that we help individuals identify what those obstacles are and help them build skills and resources to address them effectively. I think I'm particularly intrigued because I've done some work with practices to understand their population that uses the ED. And frequently I will hear from care managers or providers it doesn't really matter what we do; they always go to the ED. We try to educate them, and and I kind of reflect on. First of all, I hate the term non-compliant. You've heard me say that before, but it is a there is a population where we don't know all of their story, and I think that's where it is important that we understand how we communicate in a non-judgmental way. How we not. Um, communicate a stigma of any sort in how we address individuals, and we help create safety. And Katie, I know you've done a lot of work in the area of implicit bias and trauma-informed care. Any comments or thoughts on the impact of feeling safe and included in an individual's choice to use the ED versus a, a maybe more appropriate
3: setting? Yeah, um, I think when I think about um, inequity and a sense of safety and belonging, um, I think about that bigger picture and I like to use the word dignity, um, that sense of being worthy of you know, respect, of quality care, of knowing that you're worthy to be treated as such. Um, and that really involves safety, but also, patient empowerment, um, good communication, fairness, acceptance, Um, those things that promote dignity in healthcare, um, really like compassion, patient-centered and shared decision-making, they aren't always there. Um, We talk about often providers' frustrations around patients who have behavioral health um, challenges or diagnoses. Um, being non-compliant, no matter what they do, um, they're just going to use the ED. And I, I like to take a step back and think about why is it that they feel that way? When I was doing um, some equity and um, burnout work, a lot of the burnout work actually came out of the question of, or the issue of stigma and bias, in those places in which people would assume that they were being provided safe, judgment-free care were actually most of the places where they felt most judged for who they were. They didn't have a sense of dignity when they came into the office or that they were going to be treated um, in the way that they deserved and the way that they needed because of a mental health diagnosis on their chart. Um, So that for me, the word dignity really plays a big role in this around do they feel safe and do they feel like they're gonna be treated um, as a whole person and not just as um, a single diagnosis that is written on their chart. And I think that plays into a lot about whether or not they're gonna go into and see um, their primary care provider as opposed to avoiding um, that circumstance or that situation and using um, urgent or emergency department care instead. Oh, that point of that dignity, I think
1: that really resonates as far as impacting a person's ability to engage in their care, to feel respected for whatever choices they make in life. Again, to feel um, that sense and that environment. And I think it's important to emphasize that's at every role. This is not just a conversation to have around providers, granted, some providers need to have that conversation, but again, across the whole staff, because everybody in a primary care setting shares the responsibility of including that patient and treating individuals with dignity and respect. And the difference in the reactions and their ability to engage in their care. Katie, you brought up a really good point about burnout because I'm fascinated. You know, I would say the majority of the providers I know, and quite honestly, staff that have worked in primary care would say they, they work and choose primary care because of the relationships they can build, mm-hmm. the ongoing. It's not just um, incidental like it is in specialty. You might see them one or two times and then not see them on an ongoing basis. So they really appreciate the opportunity that primary care brings to build relationships with the patients in the practice. And yet I think the opportunity in building relationships with people who may have very different lifestyles, may look different, may um, act different, have different lifestyles. Any comments about that ability to create uh, effective and rewarding relationships with patients that are very different? Yeah. You
3: know. Oh,
2: go ahead, Katie. Oh,
3: go ahead, Angie.
2: You know, I, as you were talking, Diana, I just, in going back to your, um, that non compliance and how we all hate that word, but it's oftentimes really nothing to do with that and more to do with the barriers that patients face after they leave um, the appointment. And I know doing some um, uh, working with a, a practice that had a patient advisory board. Um, and when they were implementing consistent depression screenings and, um, in, as a part of their workflow and just really getting some feedback from that advisory board, you, the question was asked, you know, how does this make you feel? And what do you, you know, do you understand the purpose of it? And one of the patients on the advisory board said, I, I often don't share the barriers I have outside this clinic because I don't want to bother. I don't want to be burdensome, you know, it's, and is it because, you know, that's just kind of how it is evolved that we, you know, that reaction of, oh, you know, this is so burdensome that you're bringing this up, you know? Um, So I, I, again, I think it's, it's helping, um, you know, all providers and, and seeing things through the patient's eyes and understanding the challenges we can. You know, a patient could go to the hospital and, you know, um, get better. It's when they get out and they're in their own environment that they lose the supports and, um, you know, can't stay well because of the lack of supports and understanding. So, again, I think it's, um, and doing a lot of work with residency um, uh, students, uh, the most impact, I think, in the takeaways that the resident students have. Working in an integrated care setting was truly that, and that was understanding the perspective um, from a patient, um, understanding some of those barriers that they face. You know, it's not here's your prescription; you'll feel better. It's the barriers that happen in between that, you know, money, transportation, or whatever it may be. I think, as far as the workforce go, I think it's vital to really introduce and provide that um, environment um, for new providers. Um, you know, yeah. you know, a more in-depth look through the patient's eyes and understanding those challenges.
1: Yeah, and there was some really good content there that really pointed back to that, making sure we treat individuals re- with respect, eh, dignity, and that they are worth our time and effort, even in our resources. Sometimes I I know I looked at a care management kind of intake survey assessment and so many of the questions on there were very vague and quite honestly, people who were struggling or of different ethnicities probably couldn't answer yes on one of their survey questions. And so being aware of the tools that we use and making sure they're inclusive. Um, But again, I'm gonna go back a little bit to the especially now so many primary care practices have had turnover and burnout and the need to build effective relationships and and how we do that when we're serving very diverse populations with wide wide needs uh, and challenges any
3: comments or
1: other thoughts
3: yeah i and this goes also back to Angie, both of your comments. And I think we oftentimes, especially if you're seeing um, a diverse patient population or people who need needs outside of medical care, um, we expect primary care to be everything to everyone all the time. Um, And that is not obviously realistic. And it's at the expense of actually Engaging in a positive relationship with your patient as well. Um, I, I mean, it's not hard to understand why some um, people don't even ask about uh, behavioral health or don't do the PHQ nine because if it shows up positive, um, I don't. I don't have anywhere to send them or I can't. I don't feel equipped to support them through that. And the same goes with social determinants of health. And so. Um, I don't I don't think we should expect primary care providers or staff to be everything all the time to every single patient, but to um, have meaningful collaboration and relationships with community partners outside of their practice, I think is gonna become, I hope will become more and more impar- important in order to m- meet the diverse needs of their patient population, um, and also to um, hopefully prevent burnout and turnover among their staff and their providers. Um, Katie, you brought up a really good point about not
1: needing to be the end all be all of every problem and solution, but by avoiding the issue, we alienate individuals. And so, while sometimes it is, and speaking from, you know, I know what a struggle it was sometimes finding mental health resources. And so, being fearful of what you would find on a screen. On the other hand, the most rewarding experiences I had with individual patients were centered around we collaborated and we problem solved together. So whether it's social needs or whether it's mental health needs or whether it's physical needs, when you collaborate together with the individual, it, to me, that is an act of treating them with dignity and respect, that their insight I mean, I think of so many individual patients that I learned so much from by saying, you know, I'm not sure what the solution h- is here. What are your thoughts and insight? And you would learn so much in that process, plus you would empower them of what they think is important. And so I think the most alienating thing we can do is to avoid the topic, not do the screens. Um, so I think that's a real like aha moment as we're talking here. Um, so yeah, any uh, any other kind of closing thoughts as we wrap this up? Because, you know, I love these conversations where I'm going, wow, yeah, there isn't any one size fits all solution for how we address mental health and equity in our populations. Uh, yet, if we focus on the core things of relationship, which are first of all, acknowledging Um, and and taking the time to explore what individuals are experiencing, and then collaborating. Um, Angie or Katie, any other kind of wrap-up thoughts?
2: I just think, again, uh, to your point of, um, and and Katie, you mentioned this, uh, you know, not being equipped and the fear of applying, you know, a, a a screen that you don't know what to do with and you're fearful of those results. I mean, that in, in itself, um, you know, the takeaway that that uh, clinical staff have to face is that feeling of I didn't do enough. So, again, I, I just think the collaboration, the understanding what's what's in your communities to refer and making those connections and it's, it's just really vital and and will bring a lot more, you know, kind of satisfaction in the work that you do when you you have options to provide patients. Absolutely, I agree with
3: that wholeheartedly, Angie. Um, I think you you hit most of the points I was uh, I was going to get to. So, thank you for that.
1: Great. So, kind of in wrap up, um, I'm going to highlight some key points that I pulled out of today's discussion. And one is, first of all, an awareness of what we do as a primary care team, provider, front desk staff, call center that communicates respect, communicates um, empathy, and communicates that every individual we interact with is worthy of our respect and partnering to empower them. Two is what we need to know about our population and how we gather that information. And so really understanding What are those things that take them to the ED? Because sometimes when we look, just look at discharge diagnosis, that doesn't tell you that what took them there was anxiety. And and so the need to do screenings consistently and to spend the time with individuals with more complex needs to understand what those needs are. And then empower them with some resources. And I think of the green, yellow, red that we use for asthma. I've seen those adapted to many chronic conditions. But honestly, I don't know that I've ever seen one adapted to anxiety and to manic depression or bipolar illnesses to empower individuals to do what they can. Uh, to do early interventions so they don't end up with symptoms you know out of control just as we think of blood sugars out of control uh, and then really doing this in a way that optimizes the relationship because connecting with the, with people who are different than ourselves is such a great opportunity to learn um, such a great opportunity for To me, what rewards individuals who work in primary care? And so really focusing on those opportunities as we work to address burnout in the healthcare arena, burnout in providers, uh, and the reward of those effective relationships. So yeah, great conversations. Hopefully everybody has some good takeaways that uh, prompt more conversations with their team and Angie, Katie, thank you so much for your insight, and we'll take it
2: from there. Thank you, Diane. Thanks, Katie. Thank you.
0: I want to thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned. Every month. We are releasing a new episode where we are having conversations with healthcare stakeholders and community members on how to make healthcare work. If you'd like to suggest topics for our podcast, please reach us at solutions at healthteamworks.org. To learn more about Health Teamworks, please visit healthteamworks.org and follow us on social media. Health Teamworks Chat, Conversations on How to Make Healthcare Work is a production of Health Teamworks. For more episodes, please visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.